This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Ever seen a Bible professor wear virtual reality goggles? Daryl Bach takes them off just long enough to discuss God on Zoom, plus his new book, Today on Device and Virtue. Welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. Coming to you from Chicago, I'm Chris. <laughs> and I'm Adam. <laughs> <laughs> You're already <laughs> laughing. <laughs> and we're talking about virtual reality church today. Whoa, uh, you have a special guest on. Yes, I was really excited. We got to uh, interview Dr. Daryl Bach, who's a professor of New Testament down at Dallas Theological Seminary, among many other things. He's done a lot in his career. He has. He is sort of like seminary famous. I don't know if he everyone is. knows him. Yeah. <laughs> but I went to seminary. You have like people that you nerd out over that you're like normal Christians right? are like, what? But like when you think of his name, you think of the mm-hmm. Gospel of Luke. Okay. Because he wrote a, just a famous commentary on it. He's right. like a Luke right. scholar, I right. guess. Right, right. And he taught a lot of pastors who were pastoring a lot of churches around the country. Right. So... He's a well-known, influential thinker, and so he's writing a book on virtual reality. That's, that's what Bible, I said. He's a Bible scholar. That's right? what I said. I <laughs> I asked him the same question, and he said it actually had a lot to do with his background in New Testament. So yeah, you'll have to listen to the interview and kind of see what he has to say about it. That's interesting. So yeah, we're covering sort of a lot of the stuff that even we've covered before. Can you do church online? Yep. How does that even look in the future, twenty years from now? Yeah. Okay. The book was Virtual Reality Church. By Daryl Balk, also co-author Jonathan Armstrong right. from Moody Bible Institute, the head of their VR lab. Huh. So, okay, I'll give it a listen and let's talk after. All right. Well, with me today is Dr. Daryl Bach. He is the executive director of cultural engagement at the Hendricks Center and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's written over 40 books, including commentaries on Luke and Acts and studies on the historical Jesus. He's a past president of the Evangelical Theological Society and the co-author, most importantly, of a new book, along with Jonathan Armstrong, called Virtual Reality Church, Pitfalls and Possibilities, or... How to Think Biblically About Church in Your Pajamas, VR Baptisms, Jesus Avatars, and Whatever Else is Coming Next. Dr. Bach, (laughs) thanks for joining us on Device and Virtue. Yeah, and I'm glad to be here and not my avatar. It's a much better deal. (laughs) It is. It's great to see you virtually. We are using a Zoom-like feature to be able to go across the miles and connect with each other. So I'm really glad that uh, you were willing to join us. I'm glad to do that. You know, Adam, I don't even know where you're located. So yeah, uh, I'm in Dallas. You're in Dallas. I'm in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Good thousand mile flight. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But we get to do this quite easily these days. So, and we're all very used to it after quarantine. 
So, yeah, over the course of your career, a lot of your work has been in biblical scholarship and even on the historical Jesus. So writing about technology and ecclesiology or the theology of the church seems like new territory for you. So I'm curious what compelled you to sit down and write a whole book about virtual reality church? Well, really a couple of things. The space that I've been in really for the last two decades, but in a very concentrated way since about 2010, has been the public square space. My own view is is that if if you read the New Testament, you've got to think about how the New Testament applies to life. Mm-hmm. And life as we're living it right now, it's a really radical concept. <laughs> and then, and, and 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 so, if you're not thinking about applications in the context in which you find yourself, you've left out kind of the delivery step. Mm. I can say mm. it that way. Yeah. So I was moving in that direction to begin with when I gave my address as president of the Evangelical Theological Society. I actually laid out what I what I thought the calling of the church was and where the church needed to go. And what I didn't realize, I was writing my own job description really? at the time. I wasn't necessarily thinking about going there, <laughs> but it's ended up where I've gone. And so so that pulled us into the world as it is, with the net being as important as it's become for people. And then I was in too many committee meetings in which people were commenting on, on their frustrations with technology, yeah. to be honest, without actually having spent a lot of time experiencing what technology is capable of. And that... That moved me. And then in the first chapter of the book, I actually outlined what changed my mind, Mm. which was an experience I had teaching a class, Dallas, Texas to Perth, Australia. So you think a thousand miles is a long (laughs) way. Try to swim from the West Coast of the U.S. to the West Coast of Australia. Okay, (laughs) I mean, that's even far if you start off in Sydney. So in the midst of that experience, which was six weeks online before I ever walked into the class, it was a hybrid, six weeks online and then a week in the presence of the students in Perth. And I knew more about those students and what they needed as a teacher walking into that class after six weeks online than I had ever had an awareness of for all my students in the class in any class I had taught in 30 years. Wow. And I thought to myself, there's something going on here with the difference between the mediums hmm. that that produces this change. Hmm. And it, it totally opened me up in a different way to thinking about how technology can help. So when COVID came, I was like, so where have you been? I mean, <laughs> this is at least a means of instruction and potential and outreach, et cetera, hmm. that's very, very important. Because it isn't location limited, if I can say it that way. Right. And so it impacts you that way. And it, I mean, I've done nothing in the last year but stream. I've been on Zoom, Squadcast. <laughs> I mean, I've done it every way you can think of. And my joke is, is that God's been Zooming for a long time. <laughs> and, and so in the midst of that, you know, wrestling with how to do this, and I've touched multiple continents in ways that would be much more exhaustive to touch right. and much more difficult to touch throughout a year right. than the way I was functioning before. Right. So really seemed to come out of your own study of the New Testament, your sort of conviction and insight that has come from a career of reading the New Testament and seeing how relevant it is, how relevant it was then and how relevant it is now, and kind of being compelled to say, okay, we need to be engaged with culture now in the same way that the disciples and Paul were in the New Testament. Yes, and it also has to do with the way in which space and presence got redefined to some degree in the New Testament, because Mm. obviously in the Old Testament, your focus was 
the temple. You went to a specific location oftentimes to think about your relationship with God, although God was with you everywhere. (laughs) But the focal point of religious experience was in a singular locale, Mm. you know, limited to a singular locale. And then when Jesus says there's a time coming when you're not going to worship on, you know, there was the debate between Mount Gerasim and and Zion with the Samaritans. Hmm. There's a place coming when the mountain's not going to matter because the issue is going to be worshiping God in spirit and truth. Hmm. So that, to me, and just the theology of who God is opens up all this space. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you really start to unpack some of the issues that you're dealing with here in the book. I want to jump in talking a little bit about evangelism and discipleship. You start the book sort of talking about Billy Graham and the 20th century and evangelism in sort of this big broadcast era. And then you jump back and mention the Roman government developing roads to move their military around, which I found interesting. And then how Christians Mm -hmm. use the same roads to spread the gospel. And, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, today the Internet really started with DARPA, the military defense of the U.S., developing this Mm -hmm. Internet. And now Christians are kind of coming along and saying, hey, we can use this for evangelism. And I'm curious, do you look at virtual reality now and say this seems particularly effective for evangelism and for spreading the gospel? Yes, and particularly in certain kinds of circumstances. I need to stop and and define virtual reality for a second, because there really are two different forms that we're constantly moving between in the book, and I want it to be clear to people. Okay. On the one hand, we're talking about the digital experience as a whole. Okay. You know, so whether you're on Zoom or you're doing it through your phone, however that's happening. Okay. But we're also very, very focused at points on on the virtual reality part, which is the new the newest part in some ways. Yeah. That's the goggles. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. And that's where you've got an experienced environment that you're dealing with and that kind of thing. Right. And we're flipping back and forth constantly. So most of what I'm going to say now is true of of all that medium. Okay. 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 No matter which which form you're talking about. And then what virtual reality allows you to do, at least potentially, is to protect people in the midst of your communication so that, you know, what avatars do is they allow a presence without a a specific identification. Right. And that's important in countries where people who believe are persecuted. Right. There's a way for them to gather and interact Hmm. without them being identifiable, Mm -hmm. at least unless the only way to do it is actually trace down and do some really intensive work. Right. So one of the ways that evangelism happens, and particularly in countries where Christianity is, is either outlawed or persecuted, is that it allows a reach without the person being exposed mm-hmm. while they're thinking about, do I want to believe or not? Right. And then after they believe, there's a way of gathering them into a kind of community without them being at risk and having to gather physically in a physical specific location. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying, you know, it allows for sort of that missionary endeavor in closed countries or in countries where it's high risk, and it allows for evangelism to continue where they might have used other methods before, but this allows people to interact with one another in a virtual space. That's right. And in a way that doesn't put them quite so much at risk. Mm -hmm. So there's a protective element to this that, you know, it's interesting, you know, the anonymity that an avatar presents when you've got the goggles on, you know, at one level is seen, well, that's a little bit problematic because I'm not really 
in touch with the entire person. I can't see their face or anything like that. That's true. But the flip side of that is, is that in certain contexts, that's actually a blessing because if they were identifiable, you know, they could be pursued by people who want to do them harm. So Mm -hmm. it's like all things, you have to think through the nature of the medium and you need to contextualize what it is that you're thinking about as you talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it does sound like in your mind, virtual reality, sort of formal virtual reality per se, has some benefits to commend it as an evangelistic tool in your mind. Yes. And also you talked about discipleship. There are several people around the world who I have relationships with who I've never physically met. I've never been in the same room that they have been in any one time. But we've been in enough digital communication. I've done webinars for them. Uh, I've done, in some cases, classes for them, et cetera. I've never actually been to the school that I'm teaching at, that kind of thing. But I've been in connection with students who, you know, I'd have to fly hours and all that kind of thing in order to be there. And I joke with people about this when I connect with them the first time and say, I'm really glad to be with you. I wish I could be with you face to face. But the nice thing is, is that I didn't have any red lights or oceans (laughs) that I had to cross in order to be in contact with you. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the things I appreciated that you guys mentioned in the book was that virtual reality really lends itself to being experiential, Mm -hmm. but that kind of comes at the cost of not being great for conveying abstract concepts. And I find that interesting. Because in some ways, it lends itself to experiencing the world of the Bible in certain ways and the historical world in some sense. But then maybe like Paul's letters don't really translate as well into virtual reality. I'd love to pivot a little bit and talk about what I think in the book is sort of the elephant in the virtual sanctuary, if you will, these concepts of communion and baptism, which you guys address, and I am really grateful that you guys do. These are really big issues that pastors and Christians will need to think about when it comes to virtual reality. And what I really appreciate in your book is that you don't actually come down on a specific side of these issues, but you rather lay out three different sort of facets that pastors and Christians need to think about. So you talk about what is an assembly. You talk about sort of what are people's denominational traditions and backgrounds. And then you talk about sort of what qualifies as truly celebrating the Eucharist and baptism. I'm wondering if you can unpack those a little bit for us. Well, the main thing here is to think about what we're doing is let's think through the principal questions that one has to wrestle with in order to land that plane, depending on which airport you're going to, you know, a Presbyterian airport or a Baptist airport or whatever. So, and and so that's the challenge is that we were writing and we knew the audience was mixed. We knew they viewed the sacraments or or these ordinances, again, terminology, depending on how they viewed it, et cetera. So we just wanted to have people think through the space. I think the interesting thing is, is that communion in one sense was easy. Oh, really? Baptism baptism was hard, okay, in my view. 
Okay. Huh. And the reason I say that is if I know I'm going to have the elements and share the elements, mm-hmm. that's easy to reproduce to a certain extent. Now, if you have a priestly mechanism that you view is a part of the communion and right. that shifts denominationally, yep. then communion becomes a more difficult conversation. Okay. okay? In one sense, yeah. because... You know, there's no priest there to touch every element that's being distributed or something like that. Right. But generally speaking, the the logistics of doing communion are not that complicated. Okay. The logistics of baptism, huh. if the person doing the baptizing is not with the person being baptized, <laughs> okay? Yeah. All right? Yeah. I imagine that puts a picture in your head. Yeah, yeah. Then... All of a sudden, you've got all kinds of questions and issues Mm. that are going on. Mm. The interesting thing is that what virtual space is, for lack of a better description, what I'm going to describe is open space. Okay. Okay? All right? So right now, you know, uh, people don't know this because it's audio only, but right now I'm looking at you, okay, on a screen, okay? So I'm not physically next to you, but I am present with you. Yeah, right. Okay? Yeah, our attention is on each other. And we're able to interact and and I and you're able to see you know my facial reactions and hear my intonations yeah. and vice versa etc so all that is going on and so it's open space the geography of where we are located is not the defining feature of our ability to interact with one another. Right. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Right. So then what does that mean if the baptizer, if I can say it that way, yep. not that I'm saying everyone's a John, okay, <laughs> but if the baptizer is in one square and the baptizee is in another square, and let's, we might as well have fun with this, you know, they're they're in a river or they're in a swimming pool or they're in a, I'm a Baptist, <laughs> okay, or even in a bathtub. If while I, as the baptizer, say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, I baptize you, and they, to some degree, self-baptize, okay, is that a problem? Mm -hmm. And I'm not answering that question. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, because people have to decide for themselves within their tradition kind of how they've been addressing that historically and how that would apply now. But the flip side of it is there's no doubt that if you're on a screen with people scattered even across the world Mm -hmm. who witness that, Mm -hmm. okay, that there can be a proclamation and that there can be a celebration of a new life. Right. Okay. Those things can definitely happen. Mm -hmm. So that's the tension we were trying to deal with, and we didn't feel that we had the theological bandwidth nor the theological prerogative to decide that question for people. We thought the best way to serve them was to lay out kind of what the issues are and what the choices are and then let them sort through it. I appreciated that you went and talked about the idea of assembly. You mentioned the term presence, and I noticed you actually quoted my co-host, Chris, in the book and his article in Christianity Today on can virtual communion be sacramental and is it real kind of questions. But you sort of brought in this question of what is an assembly? What is the church assembled? You mentioned people scattered all over the world. And that sort of question was a really, I think, helpful one to me because I think to that point, I'd more been talking about presence and what is presence, what what isn't presence with one another. And you even said here today, we're present with one another, but you also put it in a little bit more of a relational context That's rather right. than an existential one where what does it mean that we've come together, that we're, we're together assembled? And, and then you add on top of that, just the doctrine about who God is and the way he negotiates what I'll call open space. Mm-hmm. I was joking earlier about God's been Zooming for a long time, <laughs> yeah. but there actually is a point to that. 
You know, he actually doesn't have to zoom at all. Okay. <laughs> right. He's there. Right. And he's there in my space and he's there in your space. Yeah. And we even can connect spiritually, even though we're in two different locations. I think people, and this is completely understandable, they're so used to thinking about space as a physical and physically limited location. Mm hmm physically defined location. Yeah. And what happens in the medium is we each occupy a physically limited location, but we also connect at a level that a hundred years ago, people, oh, maybe 200 years ago, people wouldn't even have thought was possible. Right. Right. Which reconfigures the game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate it. You have a chapter that you titled Incarnation and Pentecost. And mm -hmm. I really appreciated those. And you make some challenging arguments in there. I think pastors often are thinking, and Christians in general are thinking, you know, Jesus was incarnate, therefore we should be incarnate with each other all the time. But you bring in this notion of Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the connection that the Holy Spirit makes for us. And I really appreciated that balance that you kind of bring and even the challenge that you bring to people who are kind of incarnation onlyists, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Incarnates? I mean, is that what we would call them? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, there's an irony in this as we talk. And that is we're so used to thinking about local yep. that we don't think about the universal church. Hmm. What? The medium does is it can make you more sensitive to the universality of the church mm, mm. because you're not as localized right. in your interactions as you would be otherwise. I mean, the moment I go on a chat and it's international, the challenge for me as a speaker goes up mm. because now I have to think about the context of some of my listeners is not the context I'm used to speaking to when I'm in a room in the United States. Right, right. You know, and, and the nature of their... Spiritual experience is not the same, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the opportunities that that gives for people from the variety mm -hmm. of perspectives that then get represented mm -hmm. is, is also potentially significant. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that it does is it opens up our awareness of the universal church, and that is a spiritual experience. That's a discipleship experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at one point you talk about virtual reality is not only going to shape our experience of it, but it's actually going to shape our experience of quote unquote, the real world as well. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we're going to have an expanded sort of, like you're saying, understanding of the universal church as a result of what virtual reality sort of brings to it. So here's another irony. Okay. I love ironies. <laughs> okay. I've traveled less in the last year under COVID mm -hmm. than I have at any point in my professional career. Mm. And I've traveled more mm. in the last year under COVID than I have at any point <laughs> in my professional career. I just haven't traveled physically yeah, right. to spaces. Right. So I'm less busy in one sense. Yeah. Okay. I'm more located, yep. oddly enough. And at the same time, I'm less located. <laughs> I like to say that any technology shapes our relationship to creation in a certain way. And our perceptions. And our perceptions of the yep. created world and of societies and cultures. Yeah. It doesn't just shape our relationships with each other. It shapes our relationships with our environment as well, which I think is often overlooked. But I appreciate that you're uh, aware of it. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. 
In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. I want to talk a little bit about how we talk about virtual reality and sort of some of the frameworks that we use and the ways that we analyze it. I noticed reading through the latter chapters of the book that you use sort of two different analogies for talking about virtual reality. You use what you've used here, an analogy of places, but you also Mm -hmm. use an analogy of pictures. And I'm curious Mm -hmm. to sort of hear your thoughts about those two ways of thinking about virtual reality as a place versus as a picture. And for our listeners, I want to sort of unpack that a little bit. In terms of places, in the book you write, virtual reality becomes not merely a new way of visualizing the internet, but in fact produces a new world. And at one point, Mm -hmm. you sort of ask the question, does God exist in cyberspace? And Mm -hmm. you kind of channel your inner St. Augustine and say, all reality is God's reality, (laughs) which I really appreciated. And then you even mentioned the story of Jesus and the woman at the well and their discussion of worshiping at Mount Gerizim versus in Jerusalem and how that would sort of shift over time because we would eventually worship God in spirit and in truth. So there's this place orientation about thinking about virtual reality, but then there's also this orientation around thinking about it in terms of pictures. And you talk about the avatar of Jesus. Can we have Jesus avatars, if you will, which you you end up sort of saying is a bit problematic and a bit perilous are the words you used. But you talk about these virtual representations, these digital reproductions, and you talk about it as a simulation of reality. And I often hear the cyberspace one. I don't often hear the pictures one. So the places one is the one that virtual reality sort of gets pride of place in how we think about it. And I'm curious, do you think that these analogies are both helpful? Do you think one is better than the other? What's your opinion about... They're complementary. You think they're complementary? They're complementary. Okay. Yeah. And there's a reason why. You know, there's a part of me that could say... Another irony. Remember, I told you I like ironies. (laughs) There's a sense in which every representation of Jesus is an avatar. How so? We actually don't know what he looked like. Mm, We don't know his height. We don't know the color of his hair. We don't know the color of his eyes, etc. Every representation of Jesus is an avatar. Mm, mm. Okay? So so that's the... That, that just takes some of the pressure off that conversation. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. You know, you understand what I'm saying? We actually do this with all our communication. Okay. If I talk to you about a cat, I probably have an image of a cat in my mind. You have an image of a cat in your mind. Right. And if we were both great artists, we could write <laughs> down the picture of the cat that we each have in our minds. Right. And it probably wouldn't be the same cat. Right. Or the same kind of cat, <laughs> the same colored cat, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. All right. 
but all we need to communicate is it's got to be close enough. Okay. 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 It's, it's got to be a cat, not a dog. Okay. Or not a rabbit. Okay. That kind of thing. So the reason you talk in pictures is because at least when you're in virtual reality, you, you are in a completely created space mm-hmm. uh, and you're represented in that created space, even though it's an extension of the movements that you're making, et cetera. Yeah. And here are some things that make pictures important in the perception of this. There are certain things that virtual reality could do in teaching that you can't do in normal space. Okay. When I was first wearing the goggles and getting my first experiences in virtual reality. Yeah. One of the first experiences I had is that my photo library popped up because you can oh, wow. you know, import your f- photo library into your device. Wow. And I'm and I'm in Dallas sitting in my chair. And the picture that I have is of the Sydney Opera House, which, you know, most people know what that yeah, is, yeah. that seashell-looking thing, that <laughs> is a magnificent architectural icon in the world. And what I didn't know is, is that normally when I look at a picture, you know, it's an 8x10, or it's on my phone. Okay. All of a sudden, I turned. And as I turned, what I didn't know is, is that my camera had the capability of giving a 360 perspective on where I was in relationship to the, and as I'm turning, <laughs> I'm seeing things that aren't in the photograph in front of me, but were recorded by the camera that took the picture. Oh wow! All right, interesting. And I'm going. That was exactly my reaction. Oh wow! And I, <laughs> this is one of the few times I've actually had my wife wear my contraption. I said, "You need to see this. This is unbelievable." Uh, okay. And that's true of all the experiences present. You know, hmm. you can bungee. I will never bungee jump in my life, but I can bungee <laughs> jump virtually online. Yeah. I will never race a car in my life. So imagine you're in Acts 27. Okay. On the sea voyage. Okay. You can actually reproduce a ancient sea voyage experience in virtual reality that you could never do in the context of a sermon. Right. Right. Where the person is right there. So so there are potentialities. For the way of making the Bible real and vivid, there are all kinds of things you can do with creation Mm. in a virtual reality environment that you could not do normally, that open up the possibilities of showing the depth of the beauty of the creation and that kind of thing, Mm. which a photograph sometimes gives us the impression of, but it's a much more immersive experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, in virtual reality. So there are things like that and potentialities that it has there that are fascinating. And that's all that's all visual, okay? Right. That's built around pictures and environments, this very vivid environmental you know, remember when surround sound was a big deal in the movies? <laughs> I okay. Do. Well, this is surround sound on steroids because it's yeah. not just surround sound, it's surround everything. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. That's really helpful. Early on, you talk not only about virtual reality kind of proper as people popularly think about it, but you also are thinking about I think you talked about it in a term like virtual telecommunications or something like that, just Mm -hmm. to sort of encompass the internet, social media, and these other sort of forms of digital communication that we have, even like Zoom, right? And virtual reality for a lot of pastors and Christians, they haven't even experienced it yet. And it sounds maybe a little sci-fi still, but... Do you think there are things that are closer to home, like social media? Do you feel like as you researched and wrote this book that you had a clearer understanding of some of these other digital forms of communication, that your understanding of those was deepened as well? Yeah. In fact, the challenge of writing the book was was being clear when we were differentiating and when we were not, Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of similarities between them. 
And there are also a lot of distinctions between them simultaneously. Right. Right. We were constantly wrestling with two things. One was, does this apply across the board to the mm -hmm. medium, mm -hmm. or is this applications or platform specific? Okay? Interesting. We are wrestling with those questions. And then the second question that we were wrestling with is, and this was something the book was trying to send a message on, is that media have different strengths and weaknesses. Right. And when you simply move from one environment to another, you may or may not be utilizing that medium in the most effective way of what it can give you or what it limits. Mm -hmm. So this is a practical problem everyone feels right now. Right, right. Because of COVID, everyone went virtual almost instantly and people weren't meeting. And, and so the question, is it the best use of the medium to simply record and transmit what would be happening in a normal worship service? Right. Or should you be thinking about what we can do in this medium that would actually make for more effective teaching and preaching that might not take the form of the way we do it when everyone's gathered in a room. Right. That's a very fundamental question. Yeah. And the longer we work with this, the more we realize there are interactive possibilities hmm. that exist in virtual medium that aren't a normal part of the sermon. In fact, if it were a normal part of the sermon, it'd be chaos. Right, right, okay? right. But you can incorporate it in the medium and make it work. For our church, we have an ongoing open chat feature oh, yeah, that we right. have that we have put in to allow people to comment while the sermon's happening with one another to keep people connected to what's happening, you know, in the sermon. Right. When there's a tendency in Zoom to detach, hmm. okay, hmm. and to not stay with it, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Or another innovation that we've put in the place is for our series is. We instituted, we did this with a series that particularly had a lot of potential controversy attached to it because it was on cultural engagement and the theology of cultural engagement, <laughs> which included issues of race and that kind of thing. Yeah. We, we incorporated a 3 p.m. Zoom meeting about the sermon hmm. on the same day. Hmm. So giving people the opportunity to process the sermon and giving us as the speakers the opportunity to hear how we were being heard, hmm. Hmm. Okay, yeah. which normally doesn't happen. Yeah. in the context of a sermon series. So we were thinking about how does the presence of this medium enhance the reflective experience that you're going for when you teach and preach? Mm -hmm. How might it enhance or how does it limit the worship experience of being in the room? So virtual reality really it has strengths, it has weaknesses, and part of the engagement with it as a pastor or a Christian means figuring out what does it do well and how can we leverage that? And what does it do poorly? And how do we make up for that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of the book is trying to at least be suggestive. I mean, it, we're a book early in this conversation. It, it, someone will pick it up 30 years from now and say, what were those guys thinking? Yeah. I laugh because I have a message that I give, which I start with the Telstar satellite, <laughs> right. which debuted in the summer of 1962, yep. which was the first one-way communication mm you know, going in one direction from the U.S. to Europe and then backwards. And I remember watching the show when the news broadcasters were explaining the significance of the relationship to the way they did it previously, and they were projecting what might be ahead. Yeah. And let's just say it was entertaining to listen to, okay, <laughs> to see what they got right and what they were missing on. I think our book is going to occupy a similar kind of space. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what I really appreciate, too, is a lot of pastors and Christians haven't experienced this yet, and yet you are doing some deep theological analysis of it already now so that 
people aren't wondering and trying to figure it out on their own in the next five years or whatever, that they can engage with it. And so in some ways, you guys are ahead of the curve in engaging from a Christian point of view with technology that is sort of on the cutting edge and still emerging for our own experience. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, and in a context in which some people's instinctive reaction is not to go there. Yeah. And I'm sitting here going, there are things to be, you know, thinking about and be concerned about to have on your cautions list. Right. But the opportunities also are really potentially immense. Mm. And I don't think you can dismiss those. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, Daryl Bach seems like a friendly guy. <laughs> he was a friendly guy. I really I mean, enjoyed chatting a, with him. A little bit of dad jokes occasionally. <laughs> Which is why he and I got along. <laughs> oh, that's true. You, you're good. <laughs> Hopefully uh, he is not offended by me saying that. <laughs> yeah, he's not even here to defend himself. I know, I know. Uh, and that's the fun thing. You know, I really enjoyed the interview. I think that he's obviously a brilliant guy. And he was like, I want to apply the scriptures to like the practical what is happening yeah. today and yeah. what is happening now. Yeah, it's coming out of his New Testament conviction that there's like an application to be found here. Right. Uh, a way to understand this. And we need to engage with that cultural moment. Yeah, right. I, you know, I did have questions. I have like three or four points. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just things I want to say or ask about. Uh, you can tell some me. Some soapboxes, yeah, some right, hot right. takes. And, and and let's be honest, I got to read only like two chapters of the book and I got to hear the interview. And so there are things that he might have addressed, but these are some of the reactions that I was thinking and maybe right. some people that are listening with me would have the same. Yeah. And of course, you know, people will want to go check out the book to hear like full answers, but we can pontificate. <laughs> uh, you know, like one thing I immediately realized, I was glad he clarified at the beginning of the interview. He's like, well, let's be honest about virtual reality. You know, VR, I think of Facebook Oculus 2, right? The, yeah, that came out right. in October, the new right. one. It's the big the goggle. It's the white version now, the white color you Ooh. strap it on. I know. And uh, you can spin <laughs> around in your living room and the games are fun. But it's also fun, like, you know, one of the orientation games they have on it is a space station one. Oh, where you're like, they're teaching you how to reach forward and pull yourself, but you're like weightless. So you feel like you're floating in the actual space station <laughs> and you pull yourself towards things by grabbing bars because you know you can't walk and you're virtually weightless yeah and then you <laughs> feel like it i got a little bit nauseous i'm not oh, gonna, well, okay i'm not gonna lie but this like it is pretty enveloping you do know you're in a virtual reality space but i was getting a little confused when i read some of the book because they were talking about just sort of the way the internet works and like you know we can use virtual reality for so many things and then even when he talked i realized there were sort of three different categories there's virtual reality which is like putting on the goggles okay which he brought this up right there's augmented reality right which is and he had a great example he said google maps is an augmented reality thing so it's like a layers on top of sort of our world our lived experience yeah. but it's sort of walking us through something even though we're looking at our phone and yeah. looking back at the road. Right, That's right. an augmented reality. And, you know, the other things you think about with augmented reality, you know, we had Google Glass like a few years ago, the little <laughs> glasses thing that fit right. over your eye. Right. And, and in theory, we picture this idea where one day we're going to walk down the street and in our glasses, you know, <laughs> we're going to be able to see the Yelp review of the restaurant as we walk by it. Yeah, right, right, right. right. So it's this layer over our visual world. Yes, so this augmented reality layer. Uh, and that is sort of different than putting on, going into a full immersive experience. I would argue it's actually right. very different. Yeah, it is very different. Um, I agree. And it really is be used for different purposes and maybe has different sort of 
ends that are coming. And, and then there's sort of just the internet in general. And so some of the arguments that Daryl yeah. Bach was making and in that book at large, you know, they talk about online communion. Well, they're not assuming that you do like online communion just with goggles on. Yeah. They're just talking right. about doing these things online. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right? Exactly. And it's a broader definition of virtual reality on some level. You know, they dial in at points on the glasses, on the goggles, but they also kind of zoom back and take this wide angle lens of what virtual reality means, that we're living in a virtual reality by virtue of having the internet to some extent. Totally. Let me just get a little, and I want your reaction on this. Let me get a little picky on the futuristic picture of where it's going. Okay. Like, I mean, futurism is notoriously hard. So <laughs> Right, yeah. right, right. And, and I think he was making jokes about like, wasn't he talking about like the predictions of the satellite, the communication <laughs> yeah, tell, satellite, tell star satellite that had been yes. wrong. So I will, I will be wrong now as well. However, like thinking about the future, there was a quote actually in the book. I don't think he said it in the interview, but they said, the author said, someday in the not too distant future, young people will be shocked to learn that our, our experience of computers was once limited to a rectangular window about 12 inches wide. Like the laptops, <laughs> they're going to be shocked. You stared at that thing, you know? I, is it, you know, I, w- I was thinking to myself, is that true? Are we really going to a world where everything is sort of VR-ish, mm. where we wear Oculus Rifts everywhere? I and we have glasses if- that have a layer on them. Do you think we're doing this? I'm not sure. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> if Mark Zuckerberg has his way and he's pouring billions of dollars into Oculus and Facebook reality labs you know they believe that this is the future of social media and the future of the internet okay that's a good argument he's put a lot of money into it you know they've kind of pitched this idea of the infinite office where you're going into an office but you put on a headset instead of sitting in front of a computer screen you're wearing goggles and the whole whole virtual surround is your office yeah yeah I think I tried that. They were trying like co-working. It was almost like I had an Oculus on and like you're sitting and honestly, it felt like I was in a mid-century modern house in the middle of Arizona (laughs) and like the desert was outside the thing. And then there was little glass windows popping up in front of me and there were the videos, the potential videos of other co-workers that were talking to me. Yeah. Like a really, really scenic Zoom call. (laughs) I mean, I work virtually with my colleagues in another city and I could see great value in wearing a headset all day and actually quote unquote, being in the same space with them. So, okay. okay. You know what? That's, I can see that the work picture might be a way in where people really do sit, especially Mm -hmm. maybe our experience of COVID. I was thinking, I think interfaces actually tend to merge into the environment, the more sophisticated they get as opposed to focused. And so my picture of how things go is more the Internet of Things route. So, you know, when your fridge reorders groceries for you. Right, right. Because it knows what's in there and it's using NFC tags. Yeah, yeah. And it automatically has stuff delivered. But, like, there's your fridge is not a huge screen. It's just doing a function for you that automates something in a sort of very invisible way. Or, you know, a piece of art on your wall, you ask it to change to something else. (laughs) But... But I'm not putting on goggles to do everything and then like jumping out to the incredibly mundane. What I'm wondering if the kids of the future are not like thinking, oh my gosh, we just live in this sort of goggle world all the time. And I'm not sure, you know, Daryl Bach or Jonathan Armstrong were saying that. But I I sort of picture the future is with the, we get so good at the interfaces that they actually sort of 
become less visible, not more yeah. visible. But I think that's part of what they're saying. It's not going to be limited to rectangular monitors and quote-unquote TV screens. It's going to be your computer. It's going to be your fridge. It's going to be your microwave. It's going to be your oven. And those things, maybe they have a screen, but that's just a touch screen that you're using to set things or whatever. And, yeah. And, and I mean, that's not what we call virtual reality now, but maybe, maybe our terms will change. Sure. But yeah, yeah. Like, But I think their point about monitors sort of disappearing, what you're saying is kind of another direction where monitors disappear also. Yeah, yeah. But things. not for a bigger monitor, I guess I was thinking. Agreed. You know, like maybe it's like, I don't think I look, I'm looking at an, I, I, an IMAX theater at all times in my life and that's why I'm living. Like mm-hmm. more like that things actually might become more functional and smaller. Like every light switch might be a type of screen that can change. Right, But right. it's a very functional sort of switch that just is super smart and is that it has the switch that I want mm-hmm. to be there at the time. So we have the Internet of Things, <laughs> right? And you're kind of taking issue with this idea that when we consciously engage with a computer, it may still be with a computer screen, not with a set of goggles. Yeah, and a more like I'm just imagining the future of what VR looks like. And so when we're imagining the future of VR church, I in the the book doesn't do this entirely, but I don't want people to sit there and think about it's 50 people all in their homes with goggles on going mm. to church. <laughs> Even G.J. Soto's church, the guy that sort of started his own VR church where everyone's sort of in a virtual world, has an avatar, meaning sort of a cartoon kind of character that maybe looks like a human or maybe looks like a unicorn, who knows. <laughs> and you guys are sitting in pews and there's like a virtual worship band up front. Yeah. I think that's what people picture with VR church. Right, right. And certainly this book does more in depth and more thought than that. But I'm definitely not picturing that of the future of the church. I'm picturing that the immersion is less obvious. <laughs> All right. So that's one critique. What other things did you hear that sort of sparked your thinking? You know, it was interesting to me. You guys talked about evangelism. Yeah sort of right at the top and actually the book does too so when you actually start reading the book they start talking about Billy Graham right. one of the interesting things they said is hey people w- marveled at how Billy Graham reached like a third of the world or something which is huge um, by his travels and speaking in his time but now we can reach the whole world in an instant they said and of course you know I don't love it when it said like that because it's not totally how the internet works like the technology is there to do that but no one is talking to the whole world at one time but about the evangelism thing I mean I thought it was helpful that they started out like hey this virtual reality and sort of just the internet in general even zoom these are different ways that we can sort of share the gospel. They even brought up in the book actually about, you know, one ministry that's sharing a gospel presentation 500,000 times a day and how that went up during COVID, Mm -hmm. you know, because maybe more people were searching for that. I think these things are great to talk about. What, it's interesting to me that a book about this would start with that. And that's also the starting conversation about evangelism. And I've just noticed evangelicals in many places in history start with, hey, this could be good for sharing the gospel. Therefore, the technology could be good. Uh, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that's mm-hmm. sort of the way into it. Like yeah, the yeah. argument. Even art or culture became sort of the evangelical way is like, well, this art might share the gospel, but if it's just art, if it's just a Monet there, I don't know what it's doing. And then I, I, because I don't see how that shares the gospel. I maybe don't have a very good appreciation for what that is. And it's a little bit of an old Christian debate of like, does God sort of bless all of the world and things we make? And we start with this idea of, 
us making things in creation or is it sort of about the great commission you know first you know like well this technology is good because it's a tool right and that tool is for sure in the gospel right. it's a fairly instrumentalist approach right yes exactly it's very much saying what can we do with this technology and what can we achieve and if we can achieve good ends then the tool itself is also good Right. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes this sort of baptizing of the technology in the way people that want to talk about it. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you have another way into sort of framing and evaluating virtual reality? <laughs> I guess I think of it like I think all about all technology as it's a cultural artifact. <laughs> I mean, from the reformed theological perspective, this is the debate between superlapsarian and infralapsarian, uh, which... <laughs> Those eyes just, that you're staring at me with... I just glazed over. <laughs> ...are exactly the reaction you should have. Everyone should have that reaction. I mean, this is an old Reformed debate about when God decreed all the decrees at the beginning of the world before time. <laughs> did he start with salvation or did he start with creation? I kid you not. Like, theologians debate about this. Okay. And did he start with the save people he saved? Or did he start with the world and then he saved them? And this is the idea that because God is outside of time, he didn't feel the same order of things with creation fall redemption that we did <laughs> okay. and so like theologians debate about well how did he imagine these things maybe in what order or how did he decree these things and what the result is is people will say well what only matters is what gets people saved because god first thought about salvation okay or the other position which is infralapsarian is what matters is what God made first and then the salvation's inside that. And so that allows for a wider understanding of technology and culture and art and the things that we make mm-hmm. as first being part of the created order. And then, yes, also within that there's fall and salvation. And the other crew sort of goes, it's hard for us to see any value in anything that isn't part of the saving part. Like, that's the part Got that it. stays. Got it. That's the part that is going to be eternal. Everything else is sort of falling off the Titanic a little bit. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So you would say thinking about virtual reality as part of creation, not just part of salvation, allows us to frame it not just in terms of evangelism, but in terms of, what would you say? In terms of thinking about as humans, are we making something that is good, true, or beautiful? Okay. And okay. and where is the sin and grace in that? Yeah. And I really liked when Dara Bach said, hey, God is in all places, including in quote-unquote virtual reality. Of course he's there, because <laughs> yeah. all reality is God's reality. Right. And I right. think I could, just couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. So I did like this whole Jesus avatar conversation. I did too. <laughs> uh, yeah. He, he opened my eyes in new ways, which I appreciated. I don't know. Did you guys talk about this? Like, this is an old Christian heresy. Like the idea that Jesus would be a walking around cartoon version of himself. So it's like a docetic heresy. This idea that Jesus looked like a human. Like an apparition? He was, yeah, he was an avatar is sort of the right word these days. They yeah, didn't have yeah. this back in the Council of Chalcedon when they argued about this. But like, <laughs> but yeah, he's like this apparition or like he looked like a human. He walked and talked like a human. He ate like a human. But really, he's sort of mostly God and not really human. Okay. And the council back then, like this is the 400s, they go, no, 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 fully human, fully God. That's what they sort of. Okay. And so they say it's a heresy to say it's sort of God like with just an avatar walking around, mm-hmm. like, which is really important. So I was thinking about that and liking that. 
but I loved how he talked about God zooming. What did he say? He said like, God's been zooming for a long time, I think is kind of yeah, how he said Yeah, right, 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 right. And I was like, oh, that's such a dad joke, but it's such good theology too. <laughs> hey, dads can have good theology. <laughs> you know, this idea that like our relationship with a God is somewhat mediated. When I zoom with you, I see your face, I hear your voice, but uh, it's not fully that you're right there with me, but there's a lot of your presence. Right. Right. He winds up saying it's not quite the same because, you know, God, the Holy Spirit is with us everywhere. Right. I sort of said, well, I think it is the same. I think God, every time he's talking to us, and this means whether it's by his spirit sort of in our thoughts and mind, whether it's through the nature we see outside, or whether it's through sort of the Bible, like words of scripture, all these are coming through the created nature, that God outside of the creation is talking to us through creation. Therefore, creation is just essentially a big zoom. (laughs) I can sort of see what you're saying. Nature is God's zoom platform. (laughs) (laughs) But I think you would have to say it would be akin to the guy who created zoom using zoom. (laughs) Uh, oh, uh, okay. You know, so if we use Zoom, uh, <laughs> there's a slight difference, but like, yeah, God created the platform and then he used the platform to convey who he is. Okay. I feel like you just improved my analogy. <laughs> so it's great. <laughs> it's great. But I do think, especially with scripture, Christians go, oh, God's talking straight to us. I'm like, yeah, but he's talking through language, which is a technology, mm-hmm. pa- you know, paper. If we're talking about the Biblos, the actual book, he's talking through the means of nature. And you know, I wrote on this years ago. So I really said, you know, special revelation of scripture is actually inside of natural mm-hmm. revelation, which is a crazy thing to say theologically. But I think that's true. God is using the stuff around us. Right. He's not the stuff around us. He's outside that stuff. So he has to talk some way to us. <laughs> so he talks through Zoom. Yeah, I can see that. And you mentioned this, you know, the spirit of God speaking to us. And we have a spirit inside us that is created, but it's not tangible or material. And so, yeah. you know, Zoom is completely material and it conveys the materiality of a person but it's actually by our words that we convey something of the spirit of ourselves but there's also something beyond words that we encounter as well that we talk about in terms of engaging with someone and then engaging with god too and when you say god is outside of creation like there is a spiritual reality that i think is there too and you mentioned that yeah but i see what you're saying you're saying god is spirit with God's breath, we are spirit in yeah. that sense. And there's some link there you're saying. That's- yeah. And, and I think it goes a little bit back to, you know, we talked about the incarnation as a frame for thinking about virtuality, but we also talked about Pentecost or the Holy Spirit as right, right. Uh, a frame for thinking. And I think those two things are linked together and that's something that I don't think Zoom can entirely encapsulate. Totally. And, and you know, by the way, I loved how he did that because, you know, I complain often that people just talk about the internet being virtual and you're not there and you're not physical. <laughs> and I sort of say, wait, the Holy Spirit is a great example of how right. God is present but not physical. Right. And like we need to understand that that's real. Yeah. And uh, he picks that up both in the book and the interview. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's the means by which someone like Paul says, I'm with you in spirit. 
to discipline this person in your church, hmm. you know? <laughs> so Paul has this idea of being spiritually connected, even though he's far distant from them. Yeah, totally. And that even, I feel like, leads to the last thing I wanted to bring up, which, of course, was that exciting part where Dr. Bach quoted me in his book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it all comes back to you. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Which was flattering. But, you know, they were just, him and Armstrong were talking about you know, communion online, like yeah. the sacraments online and all the yep. stuff with that. And I had written an article for Christianity Today about online communion still being sacramental and about that idea that when you go online with communion, there's still real bodies, yeah. real bread, yep. where it's not Gnostic. And then there's this question of presence together. And he would talk about the togetherness some, right? Yeah. He seemed to use relationality as an important thing to be thinking through in the church and the assembly of the church. I like the assembly thing he used. And I think the relationality I really, really agreed with. Like, I don't think with communion, and I wonder what he would say to me, but I don't think with communion, you can just do it on Zoom or with goggles either way, with just random people. Mm. Like my argument when I made this originally in that article was that you're doing it in your local church. So like mm. in some ways I sort of already know you, like mm-hmm. we did, we have done it before in person together and we have hoped to do it again in person together. Mm. And that sort of link togetherness is part of what makes us assembled and present now when we're on zoom. It's why when I call my family on the phone and do a group call, we feel like we're together. Right. But if I do a conference call with randos yeah. and a work call, I don't feel very much connection or togetherness yeah. at all because I've never really sort of been with them. There's That's a difference between sort of random people with no connection versus extending our relationship as McLuhan would say by things like zoom. Yeah, that's interesting. Like I said, I've been working with new colleagues over the past year, all of whom I've met in person at least once. In one case, I think it is just once. And it makes me wonder, could a church that meets virtually and meets each other virtually for the first time, you know, if they spend 50 weeks on Zoom, do they develop connections that are meaningful enough to qualify in your estimation? Yeah, I mean, no, that's the sharp question. There, you know, I was working a job last year for a while, portion of the year where I didn't yeah. meet any of my colleagues, <laughs> but we did meet online, and there was shared even emotion right, there, right? Because there were solved problems and challenges, and so between Slack and Zoom, you do feel some humanness, right? Yeah, um, you feel quite a lot of humanness. Yeah. Actually. In fact, I was going to make that point earlier. At some little point in the book, they do a throwaway. Well, virtual is just sort of mimicking real, and I'm like, no, 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 virtual. Like, is real, right? Like, is the virtuality come from the device or does it come from the person? Mm. It comes from the person. When you are on Slack and if you have an argument with your coworker on Slack (laughs) and they sort of hurt you or contradict you, that hurts you, right? That's your reality. That's a real thing that happened. It was relational and it's real. So our presence in these digital spaces is real regardless. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And clearly what you're saying is we can build a relationship in some ways in those spaces as well. I think it's probably partial, even mm. though I'm positive on it. But I think it's like yeah. it's like not two-dimensional. It's not four-dimensional. How many dimensions are there? <laughs> Let's say there are 17 dimensions of it. It probably captures eight of them. That's. I mean, that's interesting because I do hear you regularly be very positive about connections over the internet. And so it is interesting now to hear you kind of <laughs> saying, no, I think there is something rooted in the physicality of being in the same proximity space with each other. There is, but... I. Uh, Pedagogically, I've always said, like a class does really well, like online classes do really well when you start a week in person together and then you do the rest of the semester online. 
in that kind of thing. And that's because yeah. we're pairing those two. Dr. Box said that he noticed some seminary classes where he had interactions with people. I think he was talking about Australia. Yeah. They were better than he thought. Like they were unusually good. It was yeah. better than other times when he had taught. And he noticed that there were some features of Zoom or whatever it was right. that actually made it more close than people, than classes he had taught in person. Yeah. And so like, the, I think they, they complement each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it makes me think of when people long ago and far, far away wrote love letters to each other. And nice. I, I, I look at that today and I think, oh man, that's so challenging. I can't imagine how you could fall in love with somebody writing letters. And yet people did. But there is this sense of interiority that comes out into the page and then is shared to the other person. And a degree of intimacy that yes. happens because of that interiority But again, it's by our spirit, it's with our words that we convey to each other who we are. And we get to do that on Zoom in some ways. But I would agree, out of the 17 dimensions, there's a handful of them. But we're still figuring out what's missing on Zoom. What are the dimensions that aren't quite there yet? Yeah, totally. Well, I love that you brought this conversation to the table, Adam. The book is Virtual Reality Church. Pitfalls and Possibilities are How to Think Biblically About Church in Your Pajamas, which is good. (laughs) VR, Baptisms, Jesus Avatars, and Whatever Else is Coming Next by Derek. Bach and Jonathan Armstrong. And I'm pretty sure you asked Dr. Bach a vice or virtue question. (laughs) I did. Since you are a New Testament scholar and have a lot of experience in the world of the New Testament, I want to pitch a device to you and just what's your what's your gut reaction? Is it a vice or a virtue? And you can share any thoughts that come to mind around it. And so vice or virtue of the day is Roman roads. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a lot of things in life. Okay. You put an oar in the middle (laughs) and I'm sitting here going, one of the skills that we need to develop as people is the ability to de binary (laughs) some of the choices that we make about something (laughs) that There are things about Roman roads that were wonderful, (laughs) and there were other possibilities that had a negative impact, you know? So it's like a lot of things. They can be blessings or cursings, depending on what we do with them. The major thing about the creation mandate is that we are called to be good stewards of the skills that God has given us when he made us in his image. Mm. Mm. And that's always kind of the standard against which to measure something. Is this something that I'm using in a way that is beneficial, or is this something that is allowing negative things to go on? I mean, the road itself is pretty neutral. It's made up of dirt, but what we do with it, that's that's really Mm -hmm. what matters. Mm -hmm. So I didn't answer your question at all. That's all right. You know, I'm a product of the internet, and, you know, the internet is built on a very binary ones and zeros. And so, you know, I'm going to naturally think, is it a vice or virtue? And yeah, you know, I, I'm a two in the world of the internet. Okay. (laughs) That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, I, I look at Roman roads and I see they're, they're definitely directing traffic and they identified what were the important locations and what were the places that got bypassed. What was the backwaters of the Roman empire, right? If you had a Roman road that was running through your neighborhood, then you were both on a path of prominence, but also you could be subject to Roman rule in sudden ways, I suppose. So I Mm -hmm. I, I do agree with you that there are ways that it's both a blessing and a curse. But I do appreciate what you said, you know, from the standpoint of thinking about it through the eyes of stewardship and looking at our technology and asking, 
you know, are we using this to steward what God has given us well, to steward our bodies, to steward our imaginations, to steward our churches in ways that glorify God and bring honor to him. So I really appreciated that. Thank you for writing this book. And yeah, thanks for coming on Device of Virtue to talk about it. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to have been with you and this has been fun. Now I need to go put on my goggles and see what the real world is like. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.